I'm Allie, and I'm one of the ministers here at Calvary. Um, and we're so happy that you've joined us this morning despite the weather outside. It sure is great to see all of y'all. So if you're new to Calvary, we want you to know that you're welcome in this place and that you're gl we're glad you're here with us today. And we'd love to have a chance to follow up with you. And a great way to do that is if you fill out the visitor card that's in the pew. Um, if you'll just fill that out and then place it in the offering plate later in the service, we will follow up with you. So today we are continuing our Lenten journey in discussion about fear. So one of my favorite memories of my childhood was reading the Harry Potter series with my mom. So in the first book, I was about seven years old when I started reading it. Harry, who's the main character, was going about his business during dinner in the school's great hall, which is like their dining hall. So all of a sudden, a professor runs into the hall and announces, there's a troll in the dungeon. And so Harry and his friend Ron take off running, and they're supposed to go and hide from the troll with everybody else. But then they realize that one of their friends, Hermione, doesn't know about the troll being in the school. So they go off on their own, and they go into this area where the troll was to alert Hermione that a troll was in the building. So by the time they got to Hermione to inform her, she was already in the same room as the troll. So chaos ensues, and they all fight the troll in an attempt to subdue him and protect Hermione. So the author of the series describes like Harry's action in this moment as follows. Harry then did something that was both very brave and very stupid. He took a great running leap and managed to fasten his arms around the troll's neck from behind. So the author doesn't explicitly share that Harry was afraid, but I'm assuming that since he was 12 years old and no more than 110 pounds, he must have been frightened. She does say, however, that he did something that was simultaneously brave and stupid. And he didn't only do these things, but he did them and faced the situation by running and taking a great leap. So we all have these trolls in our lives, right? The things that we're afraid of, things that present danger to us or prevent danger to our friends or our family. Maybe this troll is something we've already latched onto in an attempt to take on. Or maybe we're still building up the courage to take that great running leap. Wherever you are in this journey, I hope that today through word and through song and through prayer, you will continue to be challenged in identifying the fears in your life. Deliver us, God, from our fears and deliver us, God, from anything that keeps us from fully glorifying you. Amen.
Lord, we come to you this morning from many different places. Some of us have experienced pain, loss, and hardship this week, and others have felt joy, celebration, and new beginnings. We want this to be a time to gather and center ourselves to you. Whether we are afraid, stressed, excited, or apathetic, we want to meet you here. I want to be reminded of your goodness and grace today in the midst of life's struggles and fears. Help me surrender my fear of the unknown, my fear of inadequacy, fear of change. I desire your transformative power in my life. I know you can replace my fear with your peace and holy presence, so I ask for that reality this morning. We invite you into this space, Holy Father, and pray for your transformative spirit to breathe life, peace, and movement into our lives at Calvary and beyond these walls. Amen. God is for us, and he has opened our eyes. 
It is well with my soul. Is that an elusive ideal? A hauntingly compelling confession of hope or both? In 2006, I was diagnosed with bladder cancer. I was told it was a good cancer to get, imagine that. But the cancer was not invasive, it was just in the lining. My hair is pretty bad. I see with trifocals but I can feel with the best of them. The cancer and the side effects of my treatments constantly bent me over with knife-like pain. Depends, I'm not a poster boy. They're not dependable. <laughs> the doctor thought the meds which turned my flow into burnt orange would help, but I told him that I already burned very badly and UT wasn't gonna help me, and it didn't. The treatments worked. In 2009, the bladder cancer came back. It scared me with a suggestion it might be in my kidney this time. I was sent to Dallas to a specialist, and he said it was so rare for this to go into the kidney. Don't worry, don't fear. The treatments worked again, and it came back in 2013. The dreaded C word. This time it was in the bladder and in the lining of both kidneys. Sorry folks, I was not fasting from fear. I left the Waco doctor for good because he told me if it ever got into the kidneys, he'd have to try voodoo medicine. I confronted the fear and I went to Houston to MD Anderson. They put two nephrostomy tubes in my back, administered the chemical therapy, the treatments worked, Voodoo stayed in Waco. This past fall, it came back a fourth time. Not in the bladder, but in the linings of both kidneys. I finished six treatments this spring. I've been waiting for a couple months. And on Easter Sunday night, I go back to Houston to see if the cancer is gone and hopefully get three booster treatments. Pat's afraid I'm gonna lift my shirt right now and show you the tubes. I'm quite capable of that. 
They connect to my kidneys and they hang out my back, young folks. I'm not, but they'll be there a long time. Folks, I don't fast from fear. I confront it with a bit of confidence sometimes. I fall down before it and beg sometimes. I have a sense of despair sometimes. I tell some friends too much, ask dear ones like Eric Holloman and Deirdre Fulton, ask Mary Alice, wonderful in pastoral care that she is, ask my wife Pat, who hears me ask questions that she doesn't know the answer, nobody does, or we already know the answer and I don't need to ask. Baptists have saints, I've named just a few. One of my favorite Holy Week phrases is, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. When you're sick, it's Friday. It's dang Friday. It hurts. It's emotionally taxing. It's been the hardest semester of my career. But Easter says that Sunday's coming, and for me that means hope amid fear. My hope is in Christ who suffered for me in the past. My hope is in the resurrected Lord who is alive and suffers with me today. My hope reminds me that God sustains me through saints, even sinners, and in healing ways I don't know about. It's Friday, yes, but Sunday is coming. And yes, for me, I do hope that when I come back in a few weeks, I'll tell you the cancer is gone again. I love the song, It Is Well with my soul. It is an elusive ideal. And it is a hauntingly compelling confession of hope. Amen. to be all 
A reading from the Gospel according to John. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is from God's glory, so that the Son of God can be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble, because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble, because the light is not in them. After saying this, he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, and they thought that he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. This is the word of God for the people of God.
God, help us be in touch in this moment with our need and our need for you. Help us be mindful of and see the things that are in the way of who you call us to be. We know that you desire truth in our inward being. So teach us now wisdom in the sacred heart. Through Christ we pray. Amen. I had a really strange thing happen on Thursday. I wanted to share it with you. It was, uh, you, do you remember how beautiful a day it was? So I couldn't wait to get home after work. It's like, I'm going to get home. I'm going to go outside on the porch. We've got this pretty nice, quiet place. And uh, the porch is shaded by some oak trees. So it was absolutely perfect. And had the house to myself. Julie wasn't back yet. And I'm out there on the porch. And I've got a paper. And I've got something to snack on. And I've got a new puppy to pet. It's perfect. It's a classic moment on your back porch. And then all of a sudden, I start hearing these voices that are sort of in an irritating way, invading my hallmark moment. And at first I thought they were coming from on the other side of the ravine, right? We back up to this ravine and that thing's echo. And, and now it wasn't that. And I kind of looked to the side thinking maybe somebody's in the backyard over to my right. Uh, and then actually I started thinking, it's, it's a cell phone maybe. Julie, did she leave her phone out here or something? Because, and maybe dropped it. I thought it was coming you know, kind of down below my, where my feet were. And uh, there was clearly a conversation taking place, so I, I, I bent over there on my porch to try to hear it. And that's when I realized that it was the acorns that were talking to one another. Really, I'm not, I'm not making this up, y'all. It was the acorns, and there was a bunch of them, and they were all circled up having this pretty uh, in- engaging conversation. And I, I took a closer look. I started looking at the acorns, and they were absolutely, I'm going to tell you, these were stunning acorns beautiful you could tell they spend a lot of time polishing their shells and taking really really good care of their exterior I think you know as I listen they seem to be really bright acorns smart as acorns go Uh, they were articulate very confident of themselves and they're just impressive and and I'm thinking I think maybe a lot of them were baby boomers because they were really into self-help stuff I could tell I mean you know that they probably read books like how to make the most out of your shell and a cornopathic therapy and, and cap medi- meditation and seven habits of highly effective acorns, that sort of thing. So they're just <laughs> exceptional and, and growth-minded, very impressive and attractive, all except for one of them. There was this one sort of dirty, capless acorn, and they were actually gathered around this particular acorn, very engaged with, with this acorn, and, and he appeared to have just dropped out of the blue, Right? wasn't easy to hear, but as I came to understand it, he was just dropped by a bird right out of the sky, and he was this naughty-looking little fella, and he was stammering out some story. And he seemed to be trying to tell his fellow acorn something that was very, very important, so I thought, well, I'm going to bend down so I can hear this, and, and uh, you know, trying to make sense of what was going on. And he, I heard him clearly say, as he pointed up to the tree, we are that. And most of the other acorns just died laughing and just thinking he was nuts. Um, <laughs> thank you, Megan. And, uh, you know, they just mi- dismissed him, went back to polishing their shells, but there were a few who hung around. They were curious, like maybe a little bit more open-minded as acorns go, and I heard them asking, so tell us, how might we become that tree? Their curiosity seemed to be coming from a pretty deep place, like maybe they had some intuition about their own limitations there in that shiny existence right 
off the edge of my back porch and maybe they were made for more. How do we become that? They asked. Well, he said, pointing downward, it has something to do with going into the ground and cracking open our shells. And they just stared at him with disbelief and horror until one of the acorns finally uttered, why then we wouldn't be acorns anymore. In the Gospel of John, we see Jesus making this intentional journey towards Jerusalem and to the cross, and it culminates in chapter 11. Part of it we just read there where his death seems imminent. It seems to be a foregone conclusion. And it's certainly in that chapter looming large as a theme in the gospel. And really to appreciate that moment, just how imminent and large it is looming, we need to back up a little bit and get a running start into chapter 11. Here's the way John tells the gospel story. In chapter 1, he has John the baptizer pointing to Jesus and saying, there he is, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, framing this mission sacrificially. And then in chapter 2, John has the cleansing of the temple. The other gospels, remember, put it where? It's at the end there. John puts it first as a way of saying, all this is coming down, this system of buying God's favor. It's coming down. In chapter 3, he tries unsuccessfully to communicate to this ultimate insider. That's what Nicodemus is. And Jesus says, you're a teacher for crying out loud of Israel and you don't get this. So the insider is now the outsider. And then the next chapter, chapter 4, the first revival breaks out in Samaria of all places. They're the ones who first believe in John's gospel. So the outsiders are now the insiders. In chapter 5, Jesus heals a crippled man and tells him to get up and carry his mat. The trouble was, it was the Sabbath. And both of those things, healing and carrying the mat, which Jesus told him to do, were illegal on the Sabbath. Then Jesus, in chapter 6, begins saying some odd and edgy things, some things that are obviously heretical, like if you believed Moses, you'd believe me because Moses is actually writing about me. I'm the bread of life, and if you eat this bread, you'll live forever. My teaching comes from God Himself. And you can imagine the disciples. This is my picture of a disciple in, in John's gospel. They're just like, oh, I wouldn't. I mean, it's wincing all the time. Every time Jesus says something, it's, oh, I wish you hadn't said that. We're going to be in trouble again. They're wincing all the time as he says things like Sabbath. Well, my father's at work. So I'm going to be at work too. And by the way, you don't even know me or my father. Then he goes on and just takes the name of God. He uses it over and again in John's gospel. I am. It's ego and me in the Greek. I am. I am the way. I am the good shepherd. Before Abraham was, I am. And surely some of the folks are connecting some Old Testament dots there, right? And it's deja vu at the burning bush where Moses, you know, told was told by God to, to refer to him as I am. But most folks are just thinking, you don't talk that way in our house. <laughs> you don't say that kind of stuff very long and, and keep your job. So, so St. John, all the way through the gospel, has these asides all the time. They were plotting to kill him. They were trying to arrest him. They tried to seize him. And in chapter 9, he comes along and heals a blind man on the Sabbath, wouldn't you know it, by putting mud in his eyes, which was was a, a medical procedure prohibited on the Sabbath. 
had to do it that way, though. And then in chapter 10, they finally pick up some rocks, and they're going to stone him, but he escapes. Heads for the hills across the Jordan where John was first baptizing, and that's where he is when he hears word about his friend Lazarus. He's in critical condition, but he does not go. He's still watching his own, own clock, right? Keeping a different time. So he waits two more days, and he says, now. Now let's go back to Judea. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in Bethany. It's the suburb of Jerusalem. So going back to Judea means going back to that place where everybody's just polishing up, you know, their, their best stoning rocks, waiting for Jesus to show his face again. And the disciples remind him, uh, have you forgotten you're a wanted man? Back there, you're a wanted man. And he does what he often does in this gospel. Jesus gives them kind of this cryptic word that they don't get. And, and, and Thomas kind of cuts through all that in a way. And they heard the words from Thomas that I want us to hear. It's interesting the way the writer says that Thomas says to the rest of the disciples. To the rest of the disciples. Let us also go that we may die with him. For sure, Thomas is saying what's obvious, given the predicament. We know he's an honest guy. He just says what is, right? Jesus going back there. He's going to be killed, and we belong to him, so we're going to go with him no matter what the cost. That's what Thomas is saying. John's, I think, saying more than that. So Thomas says one thing. John means two. Thomas's poignant line then is not just this sober prediction about the death that awaits them back across the Jordan. It is an invitation to all of us to the way of life that we enter into when we follow Christ. Throughout the centuries, the church uh, has seen in and proclaimed about the cross many, many things. It's been called the Paschal Mystery because there's, there's no one passage or position, no one theology or theologian. There's not one church, one church's teaching, one metaphor or, or meaning of it that can capture somehow what is true and central and saving about this mystery. Something happens in and at the cross, and, and we've known that. We believe that. Something is changed, transacted even, won, defeated. Something is also revealed revealed who's God who are we and what is life to God and, and what is life in God like in the death of Jesus the church has always perceived a pattern an essential sacred pattern they saw that the cross and the resurrection were more than events to change things they were events that reveal things and in particular reveal to us the way that leads to true life to the essence of what is love. Self-emptying as the way to kingdom living is revealed to us at Calvary. So Thomas spoke up that day on the other side of the Jordan and what he said really is the essential teaching of our faith. Let us go with him so that we may die also. Thomas named it. Named the way of Christ. Named the way to life in God and to our full salvation and to new creation that we're called to be. There's no other way. To cling to life is to lose it. To cling to yourself is to lose yourself. Cling to the past and you'll lose the future. 
cling to a moment and you'll lose the next one. As someone said, every present moment must become baptismal. Every present moment must become baptismal. There's no living without a dying, right? There's no transformation from acorn to oak tree without falling into that earthen, dusty grave. There's no movement from ego to essence. No movement from the way that we're held captive to freedom, from selfishness to sanctity apart from following Jesus in this sacred pattern. Jesus was once asked for a sign. I think it was in Matthew's Gospel. They said, give us a sign. You know, we've got to have something so we can sort of know. And he said, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. And you'd have to go back and read Jonah to think, well, what is the sign? And when you read Jonah, you see all this use of the word down. It's descending in Jonah. Down to Joppa. Down into the ship. Down into the sea. Down into the fish's belly. Jesus is going down into the darkness. Salvation is first this downward movement, falling in trust into what will be ultimately transforming, like an acorn giving up, listen to it, the protective shell. All the stuff that we use to protect us from real life. How many times does Jesus have to say it in the Gospels? To save your life, you're going to have to lose it. To find yourself, you're going to have to lose yourself. Following Jesus towards the cross is always, as lots of folks have said, an invitation to die. Thomas is looking off the page at the rest of the disciples when he says, let's go die with him. It's what saints do. It's this ongoing and everyday conditioned kenosis. And there's that wonderful word that Paul uses in Philippians, to try to name what's happening in Jesus as Jesus empties himself, kenosis, inviting us to do the same, right? That's why he's talking about it, to have that mind in us. That's what the saints have. It's what the saints do. What does that look like? How does that happen? It'd be interesting to be able to just sit and think with one another about that. Most of it, I, I'm thinking, is small, ordinary, everyday stuff, you know, where you, you find yourself putting someone else's needs in front of your own. Or you think about what your neighbor next door needs and, and maybe even provide that help. Or you, you stop worrying about your reputation because it's time to just trust that into God's keeping. It's loving and being an example of love with, without expecting anything coming back the other way. Kindness when someone didn't deserve it. Accepting someone who, who really hasn't offered it to you, going out of your way again and again without having, you know, that commentator you haven't, we have in our head that says, well, how about that, Bob? He's really one special person. I bet everybody thinks highly of him now because he goes out of his way all the time. He just stops eventually. I think it's hard work and daily work dying to self, but it's what saints do. They let go and they develop this capacity of the soul for surrender. The capacity is there. It's just not developed. So we, we cling, don't we? 
rather than relinquish and into love. The saints have a way of receiving what is. The saints have a way of somehow their me becomes this we and and this we becomes the world and things are just a lot larger. And that happens because, you know, they took out the garbage with gladness and they just learned to serve in little bitty ways and one day at a time they died to themselves. Saints in this world sit with people. Sometimes they're suffering and they just hold their hand and they don't worry about having something meaningful to say that's going to change something. They just sit. Or maybe they write notes and emails of encouragement because they just aren't on their minds. They're themselves, not on their own minds. They find someone else there because they've died to self. They get up in the middle of the night and change diapers so their spouse can sleep. They run errands for their teenagers who are still learning how to be grateful and don't often show it. They write checks to feed the hungry, and they feed the hungry, and they vote to feed the hungry, and not feed their own pocketbooks because they've been dying with Christ. They don't orient their lives around their success and and their well-being primarily. It's really about the kingdom of God. So they find themselves often standing there with people who are on the margins of things. And they find themselves in, in the fullness of salvation uh, connected to the least of these. They speak the truth too and they love their enemies. And, and they go back over Jordan. They go back over Jordan with Jesus to walk in risky ways there and in places that involve some kind of risk where they have some skin in the game skin in the gospel game they bear part of the world's pain with God how do they get there it's a path where every moment becomes a baptismal one where every dying to self leads to life that really couldn't have been received otherwise that's the essential pattern and we see it clearly in Jesus this is the way to resurrection and he calls us to walk the same path, to this daily dying, to this holy habit of letting go, to this movement of downward love. And little by little, those who begin to live in that risky and loving way, they, they die before they die, don't they? And so now they're transformed by that. So what do you say? Let's also go that we may die with Him. Amen? God help us. It is so very hard to wake up every day and not get caught in a world that threatens us. Not get hung in all the things that we want. To find ourselves loving only people who are lovable. to cling to what is ours and cling to the, the next thing we want. It's hard. But here in these days, as you move towards Jerusalem, God, help us to hear again the invitation to come and die and to die with you 
Help us to know your death that we might know your life. Through Christ we pray. Amen. We'll sing together a wonderful hymn written, seemed like, just for this moment. <laughs> it's beautiful, and I want to invite us to enter into it as a, a time of trust and faith and time of commitment. Of course, our ministers will be at the back. There's something about which you need to pray or maybe a decision that you need to think with them about and pray with someone about. They'll be there to greet you. Let's stand together as we sing. Friends, this is the joyful feast of the people of God. They will come from north and south and east and west to sit at the table in the kingdom of God. According to Luke, when our risen Lord was at the table with the disciples, he took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And then, and then, 
their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. This is the Lord's table, and our Savior invites all those who trust in him to join in the feast which he has prepared. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, he took bread, and he broke it, and he blessed it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup and gave it to the disciples, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the saving death of the risen Lord until he comes again. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come to the table. Financial stewardship is like giving a testimony on gratitude, and, and I can do that. I am so grateful for this, this body of believers. I've been a member of Calvary since the fall of 90. I must have been maybe 12. <laughs> I can't believe how many years I've been here. But, you know, you have been my family uh, of God in this place, and you have supported me through many losses. You've celebrated numerous joys with me. And, uh, you know, Calvary ordained my mom. You ordained my mom as the first female to be ordained at Calvary. And then you supported her ministry. And then you supported my family during a very lengthy illness and during uh, her death 10 years ago. Um, you have journeyed through life alongside me and encouraged me along the way. You are my family. But you know, another reason I'm really grateful to Calvary is by being a member of Calvary, this local body of Christ, gives me this tremendous opportunity to express my faith and trust, to express my gratitude to God very tangibly by giving financially each month. Each month. Friends, this is not some burdensome obligation. This is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to grow in faith and trust. It's an opportunity to, to experience joy, joy that comes from being obedient, joy that comes from expressing gratitude, joy that comes from being a part of something bigger than ourselves. This is good stuff. This is awesome stuff. So that's why I give to Calvary. Now pray with me, please. Loving God, send your Holy Spirit to breathe into us a generous spirit of gratitude. May your spirit help us to open our hands that are so tightly clenched around the things of this world. Open our hearts so that we may see and respond to the needs of others. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to worship you this way. Thank you for the extravagant gift of your son. Thank you. Amen.
Just a few things to remember as we are going this week. First, as is our tradition, when we have Lord's Supper, we will also be taking up the Samaritan's Fund offering today. And that goes toward emergent needs in our congregation and in our surrounding community. And just know that that fund is used well. Um, our social work intern, Meg Wallace, had a meeting this week with other churches to share ideas about benevolence ministries. And one minister came specifically to learn from Calvary and said, you have the model for how to do this and we want to learn from you. So that's something to celebrate about our church and about that fund. Also, if you missed the Cultivating Generosity series in Sunday School today, there will be another opportunity for that on Wednesday night at 6 p.m. So we hope that you will get to be a part of that as well. And don't forget that next Sunday is Palm Sunday in the Park over at Sealy Park with Greater New Light. We will not have Sunday School next week, but we really hope that you all will come, participate, meet someone new. Let's not all sit on like our side of Sealy Park, but let's spread out and meet people from Greater New Light. Let's meet our neighbors. And I wanted to ask Harold Brown to make a quick announcement about a way specifically that we need everyone's help next week. Well, next week is in the park. We need volunteers to help set up things and take things down. We appreciate it very much. And we um, need a couple of trucks because taking them tables across the street is kind of hard. And we appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome. Harold, can they connect with you in the Welcome Center after worship? He's got a sign-up sheet and would love to talk to you about helping out. Thanks so much. Now, brothers and sisters, to God, who by the power at work within each one of us, really is able to do far more than we ask or imagine, including transforming the likes of us. To God be the glory in Christ Jesus and in this is church and in each one of us as we walk through this week. Amen. Defeated the grave, raised to life, our God is able in his name. We overcome for the Lord our God is able. Lifted up, he defeated the grave, raised to Christ be with you as you go today.